You're listening to a Radio Stockdale podcast. Podcasts that are inspiring, interactive, and feature various discussions of leadership, ethics, and law. Welcome to Philosophy at the Movies, a podcast where we discuss themes in the history of philosophy through the medium of films. I'm Alex Baker, and joining me as always... Sean Baker. And today's topic is the 2018 film, Ready Player One. So this film takes place about 30, 40-something years into the future. And... The world, it seems some, at least when we see Columbus, Ohio, which for some reason has become one of the most populated cities in the world, but it's almost a slum. People are living literally on top of each other with these sort of stacked mobile homes, and to go from one place to the other, you have to climb down ladders, but it's not a very good world, but everybody likes to use the Oasis as an escape. And it's this virtual world created by a man named Halliday. And you can almost literally do anything you want. But the one thing is, Halliday, he passed on. He's the creator. But he left this hunt. These three eggs you have to find. And whoever wins gets control of the oasis. And people have been trying for years one of whom is our main character, who goes by Par- no, Parcival. Um, Parcival, yeah. Par- Parcival. Yeah. And it's his, uh, it's his like username for the our, game. His avatar. Avatar, yeah. yes. And he's been trying for a number of years, and he's obsessed with it. He's a thing is, Halliday was leaves always trying to leave clues to help people figure out what's going on. Yeah. And he was a very avid, you know, nerd of the time. He was into very 70s and 80s pop culture. So by effect, everyone who is in the Oasis is also obsessed with 70s and 80s pop culture. Not just, we're talking movies, we're talking about early video games, we're talking about TV shows. And so, by fact, everyone's obsessed with him, including our main character. And there's also this other uh, person who is an egg hunter in this race. Her name is Artemis. And so, after a first race where they try and they fail, apparently this is the race people have been trying over and over again. They can never get to the finish line because of the certain obstacles that get set yeah. up. It's King Kong in King this Kong. That case. Eventually, he keeps going back and looking at the old tapes of Halliday talking with his old partner, Ogden Morrow. And they had a falling out. He kicked Ogden out, right? Yeah. And um, he looks back and he figures out a clue to win the first race. He figures out you have to drive backwards, which all this time, not one person, especially all these expert video gamers, not one person said, hey, what if we go backwards? Let's just <laughs> try it for see what happens. Yeah. But anyway, I'll go on to that later. But 
he, he decides it, and of course the back area opens up, and he's able to complete the race and get the token. Yeah. And this also... I think um, it's a series of three keys three that you keys. have to get. And so he gets the first key. And he lets his friends in on it, too. Right, and you get a clue with the key, right, that, that uh, gives you uh, uh, a very slight, subtle hints as to where to go for the next key. And as far as I can tell, if I remember correctly, there were three keys total. Mm-hmm. Once you got all those, you could uh, you could acquire that egg. Yes. Right? And the, the uh, pop culture reference there is the notion of Easter eggs, right, that yes. are placed in games and in other media um, uh, that you either have to intentionally hunt down or which are placed randomly like they are in this this example in the uh, early 70s uh, Atari game that, that is central to the later portions of yes. the film. The egg is just randomly placed in, quote, a dark room in, the, in that game. So there's more than one way to skin a cat, as it were, placing yes. your Easter eggs. And this first victory raise, makes him famous, but also raises the ire of Nolan Sorrento. And he is the head of this company that's trying to win this so he can acquire the Oasis. Yeah. And he's a big businessman. He's wanting to monetize. Yeah, monetize. He yeah. wants advertisements. He wants to have certain levels of paying members, like a bronze, a silver, and a gold member of the Oasis so he can get more money out of people. Yeah, so he's, he's the he's bad a, guy. He's the big, bad, corporate bad guy. Yes. And Holiday, uh, his... his his vision for this oasis was it, it was always supposed to be kind of like open source software. It was free, freely available to all, and he doesn't want to do anything like that where this guy does. Correct. Yes. And eventually, because Parsible becomes famous, and he falls in love with Artemis. Right, who and, is this girl that he has yeah. run into and periodically they share the with same, these races. Yeah, and they yeah. also have the same obsessions with Holiday and the same obsessions with uh, this 80s, 70s and 80s pop culture they're constantly quizzing each other yeah. and everything but she and we find out who she is eventually because they're, they have a date mm-hmm. also to try to figure out the whole thing with Halliday of the second clue and but while they're doing that he tells because he, he fall, he's in love with her and he tells her his real name and that gets the um, Nolan Sorrento's you know goons to come after him and there's this attack but they also figure out his real name and she reveals him don't tell me your name and she says that her her reason is that her father was in debt to Sorrento yes and she's trying to find a way to pay it off and that's how she's trying to win it for herself but eventually they track down um uh Parsival's real family. Yes. And they blow up his house yeah. with his aunt because his parents are gone, but his aunt and her his aunt's boyfriend are now dead because they blew it up. Right. So he goes on the run. He meets Artemis in real life. Yes. And, she, and, they, and of course, you know, in this vast oasis where, you know, you can meet anybody from anywhere, she just happens to be a few blocks away from him. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, and she's also, you know, and she was afraid, don't meet me, you wouldn't like me, and which is one of the most annoying tropes in movie history. She looks, you know, like a gorgeous Hollywood actress. She just has this barely noticeable birthmark on her left (laughs) eye. Oh, my God, how hideous. But anyway, so 
They actually did a better job with the uh, uh, the contrast between the the uh, avatar and the real life person with uh, uh, Parsifal's sidekick. Um, yeah. H H H ends up not being a guy. It's a girl. It's a girl, and that that was effective. I, I liked that, and they could have done something like that uh, to better effect with Artemis. So anyway, he, they get the group together, and they forget their other two friends' names, but they meet all meet together in real life, and once again, all conveniently all... not far away from each other in this we know this vast world where you can meet anybody from anywhere. We just live a few blocks away from each other, but anyway, yeah. So they get um, she gets captured by um, Sorrento in real life. There's a they have to do another trick which goes through the shining because there's a clue about artist who hates their own work and yeah it's also about halliday because how all the reason why halliday and his uh partner broke up was because they were both in love with the same woman halliday never um really approached or tried to yeah, advance he, the romance they just had a first date and that was it then ogden took over after that so that yeah. was their big issue but anyway they get the um Artemis gets captured. There's a big showdown. They fight Sorrento in the Oasis and try to trick him. There's this big final thing he said with the adventure game. Yeah. Because it's all about a clue. And then Parsifal reunites everybody against Sorrento. And there comes in this big, giant CGI nightmare-inducing battle in the final third act. But eventually, it all turns out, okay, Sorrento gets destroyed. Um, Parsifal wins. He yeah. gets the third key. He takes control of the Oasis, but he also learns to not do the mistakes that Halliday did. Right. So he kind of he runs it with his five friends, but um, he keeps it open to everything. He doesn't do what Sorrento did, but he also decides to close it two days a, a two week. days a week, Tuesdays yeah. and Tuesdays Thursdays, and Thursdays, just because we people need to experience reality. Yes. And so that's the movie, and you can see I don't I don't like this at all. I, this yeah. is. I have not seen 1941, because that's usually considered Spielberg's worst film. Of the Spielberg films I have seen, this has got to be uh, right there with Crystal Skull. I, I did not like this movie yeah. at all. I've it seen was, it twice, and it's just a bear to get through. It is a bear to get through. I, I, I realized probably about halfway through it, but maybe a little, maybe maybe an hour and 15 minutes or so, I, I, I realized this was a movie badly in need of editing. Um, for instance, the final climactic battle scene, which there's some clever aspects to it. I mean, they, they show the, uh, as it were, the virtual world battle going on, and then they'll switch back and forth to the real-life people in their little uh, virtual reality goggle, goggles and, and suits and stuff fighting this. Some of them are in the headquarters of Sorrento, including Artemis, right? And... Uh, Others are peppered throughout the world fighting this thing. That's kind of clever. Uh, it's cashing, cashing in a little bit on a very famous and old thought experiment that came from Cartesian considerations by a guy by, by the name of Daniel Dennett. He, he, he told a relatively simpler story where there's a, there's a guy in a lab somewhere and his brain is connected via um, uh, radio gear basically to sensors on another planet. And he is making his way with kind of a robot as his, quote, body. His brain's still running that body. It's a robotic body via radio transmissions uh, going through, you know, dangerous, life-threatening 
environments, which are no problem for a robot, right? And and the question arises in that uh, in that thought experiment in that uh, famous essay. Well, where am I? Am I where where am I where my body and my brain are located, or am I where this uh, probe is located, going through this dangerous environment? Similar kind of question can be asked about simulated worlds like this, um, but. You know, this isn't really explored too heavily. It's mm-hmm. they, they use it as a premise in a couple of cases, but like you said, I, th- I think they maybe missed an opportunity by conveniently locating all the main characters in Columbus, <laughs> right? Seems like they could have uh, really toyed with the idea of having them being in different parts of the world and and see how they can make sense out of them cooperating in the real world and in the virtual world at the same time to try to thwart the. Uh, the efforts of, of the bad guy, you know, they, but they really don't do that. And the battle just seemed to getting back to the main point, the battle just seemed to go on far too long. And, 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 and visually and it's very ugly. It's this kind of explosions and it's very, it's like just said, way too much over edited headache inducing. And, and, and they're also trying to introduce too much of those pop culture references. You, you see mm-hmm. the seeds of these earlier in the film, like for instance, uh, uh, the Iron Man robot, right? Iron Giant, and I've got Iron. things to say Iron. about that. Don't the, worry. Yeah, that, and then there's Mecha Godzilla, and and, it, and then a Transformer, and 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 then you know, the car that uh, Parsifal's driving around in is the DeLorean. Back to the Future car, and it's just too much. They're they're throwing away too much of this yeah, stuff. And in. the car that um, Artemis drives was the bike from Akira, one of the most famous animes from the 1980s. And then there were some I kind of chuckled at, the the holy hand grenade. I liked that a little bit. A little Monty Python reference for us old fogies, but um, it was just too much, and it It, went on too long. That battle scene could have been significantly shortened, I think, without any kind of ill effect for the end of the film. And I think that 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 problem with because I have the same problems. This is the thing I really hate the most about this movie is the just bloated pop culture references. Apparently, this is because based on a novel by Ernest Klein, mm-hmm. and it's even more so in, in the novel. novel. And it's apparently a kid's one novel, of the correct. A, yeah, teen, kind yeah. of young adult kind of thing. Yeah, but one of the things he has to do is recite for the test is recite the entire script to War Games, the 80s movie oh, with yeah. Matthew Broderick. And it's just like, all right, dude, we get it. You grew up in the 80s. Yeah. But it, because it, the thing is, I know why this movie was made. Because the now we're in the 2020s, but in the 2010s, everybody was obsessed with the 80s. Yes. It's that 30-year cycle where it's just, you know, Stranger Things is one of the most popular shows on Netflix. That's yeah. an 80s thing. Yeah. There was one of the superhero movies, Wonder Woman 84. Where do you think that takes place? 1984. And you just you, you see that just lately. Just everything yeah. is just 80s obsessed. And it's, we're still not over it. And it's, and it's, it's tiresome a, now. It is tiresome. And it's a little a little surprising, I guess. I, I'm not even sure if I'm right in saying this. But it's a little surprising for somebody like Spielberg to, it seems like, kind of cynically just cash in on 80s nostalgia in a film. Just, I am going to make this film so I can cash in on this. And to be fair, the source material apparently does the same thing. Um, it, it, it's so focused on that that it misses I, the, the, the possibility of, of uh, uh, exploring some of those more philosophical elements that are in such stories. They only lightly touch on the, the 
interesting question of whether or not the oasis is a good thing for humanity. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you kind of guess, I guess get a little bit of a, a negative uh, answer to that in the end when uh, uh, Artemis and Parsifal decide, you know, yeah, that, we're going to throw in as a one for, last sentence near yeah. the very end of the movie. And, you know, they, they had enough material in there in the characters, uh, his home, his home life, his aunt and her boyfriend, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the Boyfriend in particular seems to be somebody that is, uh, you know, behaving more or less like an addict, right? He he's become an oasis addict, right? And so he 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 behaves in ways that are abusive because of that, right? Um, and even the characters that aren't abusive or um, uh, in, in other ways objectionable, uh, they still spend a lot of time in this alternate world. We kind of know why, because something has occurred in the real world where the real world is kind of a miserable place. Uh, Apparently, uh, uh, Columbus, and I would assume most of the rest of the world, uh, but again, it's not made very clear, has undergone some sort of uh, either ecological or economic downturn to the point where it's all... large part of it is just this uh, kind of slum that you referenced where people are really living in uh, uh, boxcars and uh, living very primitively. And they apparently don't have any alternative and they can't fix whatever the problems are in the real world. Yeah, because in this movie, we don't know exactly what's going on outside of the Oasis. There's got to be real-world problems as far as politics, economics. And it's not there. And and the question, they could have, and again, I don't know if this is in the book or not, they could have explored that question. Well, if your world is so bleak and uh, apparently irredeemably bleak you can't fix it you can't fix it your government can't fix it it's just permanently bleak does that give people permission in that case to escape that world and spend most of their biological life in a simulated world that is uh, by all accounts at least more interesting even though it's false right they don't raise that question and they don't raise the question for the individual as well. Um, is it the right thing for an individual to do, to choose to more or less permanently escape their real world, even if it's permanently bleak or not? Is that an abdication of some kind of responsibility that you have? Um, they really don't explore that at all. I was kind of hoping they would in this film, but largely, it's just, like you said, a homage to the 90s or the 80s, 80s 70s. 70s, and 80s. And I think there's even a few 60s things thrown in there for good measure. And then uh, a big action-adventure movie with a lot of car chases and explosions and a big climactic battle. But there's just no heavier Yeah, and one of the things you could throw in it. is you know, because it's this is a lot of 70s and 80s references, the dangers of falling into this. I wish things were like how they were back then. And going back to the past and instead of acknowledging the present and the future. But they don't do that. They don't do that. And, you know, they also had room to explore in the the person of Holiday, uh, 
the dangers in that kind of retreat from reality and uh, living in, if not in a simulated world, just living in that kind of pop culture world. You know, you can think of other mm-hmm. examples. There was a game that was uh, uh, popular back in the 70s called Dungeons and Dragons, right? And yeah. There were, it were still popular. It's still popular. It's not, I don't think, as popular as it used to be. But um, the, the, there were stories told by people that had actually done it. You know, I got so involved with this and I got became so enamored with the uh, worlds we were creating that I really just wanted to do that and nothing else. So my job suffered, my personal life suffered, and so forth. Um, you see that that seems to be happening with these people here, uh, a, a good number of them. And it, it seems like the world has more or less accepted that because of the bleak nature of the real world. Um, but again, there's no discussion of it, really. Uh, there doesn't seem to be any inkling on the part of the people that are involved in this world and, and, and oasis uh, that maybe it's better that we should we should just simply not be doing this other than the choice by Parsifal and his group uh, at, at the end of the film to shut it down for a couple which days is just a throwaway days. sentence at the yeah, very end I mean, it's never really explored no. yeah, it's a shame you know yeah I, I, it seems like we've been doing it seems like for the last month or so we've been doing missed opportunities uh, films that are kind of stinkers and mm-hmm. missed opportunities for. Hey, we did one with Spielberg earlier with War of the Worlds. That's right, you mm-hmm. know, and and it's a shame because we still love you, Stephen, yeah. friend of the show. We we know we know you listen, <laughs> but but well, you know the two other movies that I think it deal with you know escaping into a different world that I think explore this that concept better. One is Westworld. Um, the movie, the TV show, kind of gets off on its own weird thing, but yeah. the, it is that escape of you're you can do whatever you want. The robots won't have any say. You get to do whatever you want to them. The problem is in that one. What if the robots, you know, malfunction and then yeah. they start getting violent? Yeah. Then what would you do? And then Pan's Labyrinth. That's and these are not the same movies. They're very different. But in Labyrinth. That's this girl that's in this terrible situation. Her mother's being taken in by this brutal Spanish general in the middle of the Spanish Civil War, but she almost retreats into this fantasy world, which at the end you don't even know if it's really real or not, or if she's just... But those show it better. Yeah. This one doesn't. Yeah, and it's really too bad. The Pan's Labyrinth, I don't know the story very well, but again, that one explores that question of whether or not it is... Uh, okay or perhaps even advisable in certain situations when your life is so miserable and so bleak uh, uh, to escape it and go into some other kind of a uh, parallel world or fantasy world and indulge yourself in there in ways that you just simply can't do it in the real world. I, I think that 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 story is much more compelling in that way. Yeah, and we we've been talking about these references, and one thing I wanted to point out it's it's just there for the sake of hey, remember this and remember that. And the thing that really annoyed me most is that they don't even understand what they're referencing because you talked about the Iron Giant. Now, if anybody's seen the Iron Giant, which is a great movie, hit that whole that character who's this alien like defense machine who comes in America in the fifties. He is trained as to be this, you know, thing that's going to wipe out humanity. But he bonds with this boy, and the boy tells him to, "You don't have to be a weapon. Yeah, choose who you want to be." And he makes this heroic sacrifice at the end of the movie. 
In this movie, he's just there to be a, be a big up. It's just like that, and that irritated me so much because it's like, did you even understand that movie? Yeah. Because you're kind of not respecting what that movie was about. Yeah, yeah, and, and like you said, it just, it just really came off as a movie that wanted to capitalize on that generation's. Uh, nostalgia for the 80s and figured, well, we'll just throw in as many possible references as we can in two hours and 30 minutes. Uh, and hopefully we'll get enough uh, word of mouth buzz on that that people will show up. And I think that does get to the source material because that he said that, and this is a guy who's, I think, now 50. So this was Ernest Klein, the author's childhood. But when he makes this, which is specifically aimed towards children and young adults this novel came out in the 2010s so these are people who are in their now their late teens early 20s they're not gonna know what half of that stuff is oh, they're no. not gonna know what monty python and the holy grail with a whole no. hand grenade of antioch it's not gonna know what that is when the zemeckis cube which is a reference to zemeckis who directed back to the future i mean all of those kids probably haven't even seen that movie or if they see it they're gonna see it later on it's this is not yeah. something it's something you grew up with as a kid but it's not something, you know, Generation Z millennials have grown right. up with necessarily. Yeah. And uh, and again, if, if that's the case, you have to ask, well, why throw all those references in? Um, maybe, and if they were in the novel, I don't know. Uh, but in either case, film or novel, if they were throwing them in, there was kind of perhaps just a, a cynical attempt to reel in even older uh, sections yes. of the potential audience, uh, those of us that would know what the Holy Hand Grenade is. But, if, you know, if they really wanted to do a good Monty Python uh, uh, reset, they should have had one of the robots do the silly walk, or perhaps the uh, the killer rabbit would have been better than the Holy Hand Grenade. Yeah. <laughs> and um, even, like, the most egregious pop culture reference is the whole second um, quest deals with the shining oh. they go into the shot basically the shining world yeah now there is I, I could give him a little bit of slack because um spielberg first met stanley kubrick when kubrick was just starting work on the shining because when kubrick uh, spielberg was doing close encounters he went to the soundstage where kubrick was making the overlook yeah so that's where they first met and they had a long collaboration famously um Spielberg directed AI, which Kubrick wanted to do, but he could never finish. So he decided to let Spielberg do it for him. So they have that close friendship. I yeah. can kind of give that a pass. Yeah. But even then, that is filled with, filled with all the homages. Hey, remember that little song? Remember the Al Boley song at the end of the movie? Remember the Gold Room? Remember the twins? Remember the creepy old lady yeah, in the it's bathtub? Too much. It's certainly too much. And they could have cut a lot of that out. Like I said, this this film was badly in need, need of an editing. I think it would have been enough in that particular um, uh, section of the film to just show us the overlook and the two twins and, and not go through that whole crazy scene when they walk into the ballroom and it's this 3D, you know, dance studio. Mm -hmm. um, totally unnecessary, I think. Um, yeah, it, it's just too much. I don't know why they wanted to throw so much in. and It's it, densely, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Just one after the other after the other. Too much. And it... it, it it comes down, I think, to this film is a celebration of nerd culture. 
Nerd culture has now become in the mainstream where I don't even think it's nerd anymore. Nerd is sort of like, oh, you're the weirdo that's really into this thing that most of us don't like because we're too cool for it. Yeah. Marvel is one of the biggest things out there. You're not, if you're a comic book nerd, you're the mainstream now. And But it's, a, it's this idea of because when he first meet when Artemis and Parzival first meet they're quoting everything they're quoting Superman they're naming all these movies and when he's trying to uh, test out Sorrento he's even trying to trick him like oh you like John Hughes movies which do you like better Ridgemont High or Faber like well Faber's Animal House Ridgemont High he, Hughes didn't direct yeah, that yeah and he's getting it's, that fed to him in his little earpiece yeah, by, so by his staff of nerds it's just like yeah. it's this I mean, I'm uh, Ernest Klein also wrote a movie called Fanboys, which is like these guys trying to get to the premiere of The Phantom Menace or something. Yeah. But Ebert reviewed it, and he gave a fantastic put-down of nerd culture. I'm just going to read it. He goes, A lot of fans are basically fans of fandom itself. It's all about them. They have mastered the Star Wars or Star Trek universes or whatever, but their objects of veneration are used mainly as a backdrop to their own of devotion. Anyone who would camp out in a tent on the sidewalk for weeks in order to be first in line for a movie is more into camping on sidewalks than movies. <laughs> extreme fandom may serve as a security blanket for socially inept who use it as extreme structures as a substitute for social skills. If you are Luke Skywalker and she is Princess Leia, you already know what to say to each other, which is so much safer than having to ad-lib. Your fanish obsession is your beard. If you know absolutely all the trivia about your cubbyhole of pop culture, it saves you from having to know anything about anything else. <laughs> That's why it's excruciatingly boring to talk to such people. They're always asking you questions they know the answer to. You know what? The thing is, I think Spielberg and, and maybe the source novel as well, at some level, are aware of this. Some of the things that the uh, holiday avatar says toward the end of the film when he reverts back to Holiday's actual appearance there when when he and Parsifal are in his boyhood room, the simulation of his boyhood room, watching him playing a, a, a Space video Invaders game or something. something. He starts to say things like that. Look, look at what you're doing. You're in cap and uh, kind of uh wrapping yourself in uh as it were nerd culture in in being a fan of the games or the the television shows or the movies um and you're finding a community there you think of like-minded people but what you're doing is avoiding life right like i did and he comes back to that opportunity he had to form a relationship with the girl and didn't do it didn't ha not have the nerve to kiss her right it, you think he's going to tell him look this is what's wrong with this thing that i've created we need to stop it and it turns out it's actually ogden right that is uh mm -hmm. feeding him this uh this uh, image of holiday uh you would think ogden wants to say, you know, I've created a monster. We need to get rid of this. We need to get rid of this obsession with pop culture. Get out of this stuff. Get out of these cocoons you've created for yourselves. Get out there and do some real life, for goodness sakes. 
because I know it doesn't do them. When I watched the behind the scenes with Spielberg promotional thing, and he was saying what attracted me to this is that we sort of live in this already. I think the thing he was mentioning because you know you put this headset on and you, vir- you that's something we have today with yes. virtual reality. You see the videos of guys putting their uh, things on and they're either in a game or they're just in this yeah. virtual world where they're just walking around a room or it's some yeah. sort of they can watch a movie and you, you, we do do we do have that already and yep. you know we people can get too wrapped up in it didn't really feel like that's where they were going mm. or no. you could even talk about the obsession with video games i mean games can be so addictive that you can just spend hours and hours and hours and even days on end just playing in this yeah. because the games are just so expansive and that's what's happened in this world. Yeah, this is what happened in this world. It's very interesting. The the the, the implicit message at the end of the film seems to be, yep, that's the way the world is. We're not going to be able to get rid of this. Uh, it would. It's it, maybe it would. It might be better for us if we did, but realistically, that's not going to happen. There's always going to be a market for these things, so we've just got to accept it and uh, move on with our lives. And it seems like the people in that world have decided to do that instead of trying to fix the, the, their real world. Mm-hmm. It's gone to hell in a handbasket, apparently. And we, again, we don't know the details of why that has occurred, but it just doesn't seem like a majority of that population cares for anything else in the Oasis. Right? Yeah, exactly. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy at the Movies. You can find this podcast and more podcasts produced by the Stockdale Center by visiting the Radio Stockdale page at usna.edu. This program is hosted by Radio Stockdale. There, you can also listen to their podcasts such as Ethics and the Naval Warrior and The Do-Over. If you like this podcast, you might be interested in my other podcast, Real Sounds, which episode I dedicate to classic movie soundtracks. That can be found online at thesoundofcinema.podomatic.com. So until next time, I'm Alex Baker. And I'm Sean Baker. Sing so long, and be sure to catch us next time on Philosophy at the Movies. Philosophy at the Movies.